How many of you guys have seen National Treasure? Okay. Growing up, this was one of like the kind of the quintessential homeschool movies. It was like it was exciting and it was historical, so the nerd in me could kind of enjoy it. But the picture that we see here is Ben Gates with these glasses. And he's in the place where they have the Liberty Bell. I can't remember what it's called, Independence Hall. And He's trying to crack a code, and he finds these glasses, and he starts looking through them at this thing, and nothing shows up, and he's pretty disappointed because he, he thought that this would lead to the treasure, but what he doesn't realize is that each one of those individual lenses has to be ordered in a specific way in order for him to see, in order for him to see what he needs to see, and each and every one of us has different lenses through which we see the world around us and the people that are in our lives. These lenses are shaped by family, by background, by experience, ethnicity, and many other things. They, they shape how we see and how we interact with people. And today I want to talk about how the gospel is a lens which helps change the way that we see the people around us to see them more like Jesus sees them. So last week, Paul introed ministry training by talking about what the gospel is. So we see he asked us to give a one-sentence summary. And his summary was three words. Mine's a little bit longer. But the way I would summarize it is, our sin separated us from the holy God. So he sent his son to take our punishment so that we could be with him for eternal life. And from this, the gospel is the center and the foundation of everything in the Christian life. Paul didn't just give it as the intro talk because it's the starting point. It's the starting point and everything else that in the Christian life is centered around it. Um, we see in Romans 1.16 that it's the power of God for salvation. We see, we saw this in Emma's talk on Monday, but we see that it changes our identity. Emma talked about adoption and how we are adopted as his children. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And finally, we see that it transforms us in the image of our creator. So Colossians 3.9-10 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And this third point is kind of what my talk will be centered around. If the gospel is transforming us in the image of our creator, then we're better to look than look at Jesus. So Paul mentioned last week that each one of these talks, we're going to be looking at a interaction between Jesus and people. And today we're going to look at Jesus and how he interacts with the crowds in Matthew 9. So before we go there, I just want to, there's kind of a key question that I was thinking about as I wrote this talk, and I want you guys to be thinking about as you listen, and it is, do I see people the way that Jesus sees them? So I'm going to pray, and then we'll go to Matthew 9. Father, I thank you so much that you looked upon us when we were sinners in love, and in love you came and you you sought us out. You died for us. And I pray that as we understand more and more the beauty 
and the grace of the gospel, that it would transform us to, to feel the compassion and love that you have for us and that that compassion and love would take root in our heart and work through us to reach the people around us. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I don't know about you, I've heard this passage used in a lot of talks about evangelism. In my experiences, it usually comes at the end of a talk where a speaker lays out statistics about the lost world. Billions of people who haven't heard the gospel, billions of people who the gospel hasn't even reached their country or they don't have the Bible in their language. And when we hear these heartbreaking statistics, it, it has an effect on us. And I, I love these talks. They have a great impact. But I think for most, most of my life, I've missed the first part of this passage. I, I tend to go straight to this is what we should do and miss the heart of compassion that Jesus has. And we see that heart in verse 36. Jesus looks at the crowds. He sees the people coming to him. And his reaction is to, to have compassion and love. And I think if we don't understand the heart behind it, ministry can become legalistic or impersonal because it's something that we do. It's something that we, we do because we have to or because there's a need, not because we see the people around us and have compassion. And I think in my past year at the U of M doing ministry on the campus, this is something that God has really put on my heart to show me that ministry is not about me. It's about million, billions of people around the world who are God's image bearers, who are hopelessly lost without him. And I feel really excited about this talk because I feel like it's something that God's put on my heart. But I'm not up here giving this talk because I have this figured out. Even in Walmart this past week, I felt incredibly discouraged because I thought, like, I'm giving a talk on this. Why don't I feel the compassion that I should? But the beauty of the gospel is that God is transforming our hearts. And he, is, he will work in us. And my hope is that for each of you, today you would maybe take another step forward in feeling compassion for the lost. And that's my hope for myself. So there are three points that I have, and there are three perspectives that we get from this text. The first point is that we are sheep in need of a shepherd. The analogy of sheep and shepherds is used a lot in the Bible. We see it in really encouraging places like Psalm 23. We also see it in places like Isaiah 53 where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, turn everyone to his own way. And I think it's a good picture of our relationship with God. Sheep are helpless. Without a shepherd, they're hopelessly lost. The shepherd guides them to food. It protects them from predators. 
and it keeps them all together. Without a shepherd leading it to pasture, sheep will stay in the same place and just die of starvation. And if that's not helplessness, I don't know what is. Um, as I was thinking through this talk, a video kept coming to my mind. I don't know how helpful it is, but I think it's pretty funny. And we're going to watch it. We're going to start it. but I think it illustrates the analogy well. Somehow this sheep had gotten to the top of a mountain and gotten itself hopelessly stuck in this fence. And it was kicking, it was squirming, and it was, it was not getting out. And it took someone coming and pulling him out for him to, to have any hope of getting out. I don't know if there's a deeper analogy with falling down the mountain afterwards. I don't really get into that, but... I think, it's, I think it's important for us to realize that no matter how well we hide it, every single one of us is harassed and helpless like that sheep. <clears throat> Last week, Paul <clears throat> had us write our stories. And something that was really helpful for me was he told us, like in his outline, he said, write what your mission statement was. And I'd never really thought of that before. But for me, as I was growing up, my mission was to earn God and other people's approval by what I could accomplish. I strove to be the best at whatever I did, but no matter how hard I worked, there was always something I could do better. There was always someone who was better at it than me. And there was no rest in that mission because I could never be satisfied. I could never feel approval. And I felt harassed and helpless in that because I would try as hard as I could and I would accomplish something that I thought would bring me joy and happiness and it would leave me empty. And this is where the gospel comes in beautifully. Praise God that he, he came to me in that helplessness and he showed me that his work on the cross was enough, that nothing I could do would add to it and I didn't need to do anything to be accepted as his son. However, my story doesn't end when I was converted. 
I resonate with this phrase, harassed and helpless, because I feel it every day. I'm still a sinner, and I still wander back to that mission of trying to earn God's approval and earn the approval of others. I think a perfect example of this was how I felt writing this talk. It's kind of ridiculous, but throughout my preparation, I felt a lot of pressure on myself to do well, to not let God down or not let the staff or all of you down. And as I wasn't in the place where I wanted to be, I didn't like my talk. I felt like I couldn't articulate. It led me to feel anxiety and despair because I felt harassed and helpless because I'd forgotten my identity and like a sheep, I'd strayed from the gospel. A verse, a verse that really stands out to me is Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13. I don't have it up here, but it says, be appalled, O heaven, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Every single one of us and every single person that we meet is looking to be fulfilled. And when we look to be fulfilled outside of God's design, we come up empty. The picture of cisterns, it's a well. And the picture that this verse paints is the fountain of living water is there for ours, our taking, yet we go and we slave to dig out our own cisterns that could hold no water. And this is where the gospel comes in and brings us back from our broken cisterns to a place where we can rest. It meets us in our needs and it satisfies our longings. And it's from this understanding of who we are at heart and our deep need for a savior that the compassion that we see in Jesus' heart can start to take root in our own. Compassion is defined as a sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. I can only sympathize and have compassion for those around me when I also see my own need for a savior. In 1 John it says, we love because he first loved us. And as I was thinking about this, an analogy that came to my mind, I've heard it used before, but oxygen masks on an airplane. Anyone who's ever flown before could tell you this, but when you get on the plane, you sit down, and the flight attendant stands in the aisle and goes through this routine of how to buckle your seatbelt, what to do in an emergency, and at one point they say, in the event of cabin air pressure loss, oxygen masks will be deployed. Put on your own mask before helping others. And in the same way, I think that if we, or the reason that they say to put on your own mask before helping others is, if you don't put on your own mask, you won't have a full of oxygen. So you can maybe help one person, but then you're gonna pass out. Whereas if you put on your own mask, you will have a healthy flow of oxygen. You can help as many people as need help. And I think the same way with the gospel, if we feel our need, for a savior and go to the gospel as our lifeline, it will allow us to have, it will allow us to go out and share the love and compassion that we have received from that with other people. But if we don't, if we're not going back to the gospel and remembering who we are at heart, that love and compassion isn't gonna be taking root in our heart and it won't come out to 
towards those around us. So my second point is we see fellowship with stories. Every one of us has a unique story. Each one of us is chasing after something different. And when we see Jesus interact with people throughout the Gospels, we see him see beyond the external, see beyond their external needs, whether that be being crippled or being blind. He sees beyond that and he sees their greatest need, which is their sin. In Matthew 9, we see that the crowds were coming to him. He was, Jesus was healing every disease and affliction, but their diseases and afflictions were not what caused Jesus to have compassion on them. It was their, their hopelessness and the hopelessness of what they were chasing after. People come to Jesus asking for healing, thinking they know what they need, but what they really need is him to heal them of their, their brokenness inside and to satisfy their longings that they could never satisfy anywhere else. And I think the way that this transforms our heart is as we begin to see the people around us and see their stories, the gospel can help us to see their hopeless struggles and sympathize with them sympathize with their endless longings for fulfillment and joy and share the hope that we have with them. And with this, how, how do we do this? Jesus could know everything about people because he is God. Unfortunately, we don't have that ability. So we must meet them where they're at. We must talk to them, hear them, live life alongside them, laugh with them, cry with them. And as we do that, we will begin to see what makes them tick, what they're striving for. Their hopes and dreams can show us what they worship. And when we see what they worship, we can hold out the hope of the gospel in a much more compelling way than we could otherwise. I think this morning I had a D group with Gabe and Brent, and I was just reminded again that I think testimonies are probably my favorite thing in the world. They bring so much joy to see and hear individual stories of how God comes to people in different places of brokenness and sorrow through hardship and how the hope of the gospel meets people where they're at. I think that's just, that's a beautiful thing. And when we see the individuals and the stories of the people around us, I think it starts to break our hearts for them because we can sympathize with they're longing and we know that without Christ, they will never find fulfillment. And my third point is, we see the plentiful harvest. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Each one of us, in whatever stage of life we are in, has people that God has placed in our lives. Even down here, Walmart coworkers, people in your room, friends from back home, teammates on sports teams, family members, the list goes on. We are surrounded by people. And they're not just numbers. These people are fellow image bearers of God. 
And what that means is each one of us reflects God's character and God's personality and God's goodness in, in unique ways. Each one of our goofy things that we do, our random skills, is, is a small reflection of, of God. And when we see that, the harvest becomes, it, the harvest is not just a thing about numbers. It, it is a really personal and a sad thing to see all these lost people. And I feel like, I said this before, but I feel like this is, this is the point that God has really driven home with me this year, is not viewing people as an object of my ministry, but see, being able to see their need for the gospel. And I'd like to just share a personal story from this year with a guy named Ben. So the way Ministry of the U works is we, right at the beginning of the year, we have a bunch of events. We get to know people. We play ultimate frisbee, spike ball, just try to meet a lot of people and start relationships with them. And the first week of class, or first week of school, a guy named Ben came and played ultimate frisbee with us a couple times. He came over to our house once, and we got to know him a little bit. And on the first day of class, I was taking this freshman lib ed class called Biogeography of the Global Gardens. Kind of cool, kind of boring. <laughs> but as I was walking to class, I, I just was praying, God, would you put a freshman that I've met in this class? And I walked into this lecture hall of about 250 people. And first person I saw was Ben. And I said a silent prayer like, God, thank you. I went and sat down. And from that point forward, I would walk back from class about 15 minutes every single day with Ben. And every day that I would walk to class before seeing Ben, for the entire fall semester, I prayed, God, would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel with Ben today? And every single time that I'd walk back from class, I would start a conversation and chicken out and let it die. I would just not start a conversation because I was scared or I made excuses. I would convinced myself that I was waiting for a better time. And I just got continually more frustrated with myself, saying, God, why can't I do this? Why can't I overcome my fear to share the gospel with Ben? And all of my prayers were about myself. It was, God, why can't I do this? What do I need to do to be able to do this? And as I started to get to know Ben, as I started to lift weights with him and play different games with him and learn about his family and what he wanted to do with his life and his girlfriend and just his struggles, my heart towards him started to change where I wasn't as focused on what am I doing wrong, what do I need to do, but I started to pray, God, I see Ben, I see his, his hopelessness, and I see that what he's chasing after, that he thinks will bring him joy in this life, will never do that. And over break, I just prayed every day for Ben that God would start changing his heart and softening it for the gospel. And over the course of the spring, I was able to share the gospel with him probably five or six times in different contexts. I read the Bible with him, and I didn't see any growth. Like, there, there wasn't any response, but Ben is in God's hands now. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and 
I, I love Ben, and I long to see him know Jesus. And I, I pray for Ben, even now at Project, that the gospel would take root in his heart. But those prayers are, those prayers are for Ben. They're not for myself. And I think that's just really what God has been doing in my heart. And I, I hope that for all of you, as you start to think through this, God would start breaking your heart for the people around you, that he would help you to feel his love and his compassion that he saw for you when he saw you. He saw you as a sinner and he loved you enough to send his son to die. I pray that God would start to work that compassion through you to reach the people around you. So, I have three application points for this. The first point is learn people's story. This shows people that you care. People love feeling heard. And it shows that you aren't just trying to shove your beliefs in their face, but face, but that you care about them as a person. And as we learn people's stories, it helps us to grow in love and compassion for them because we can sympathize with them. We can learn to appreciate and enjoy, and enjoy the joy that they find in different things, but we can also sympathize with the, the sorrow and the longing that they have. And learning people's stories enables us to share the gospel in a more compelling way. For me, the gospel freed me from this feeling of needing to earn something, but it doesn't look that way for everybody. And as we get to know people, we can start to think, where do they need freedom from, what, from the bondage that they feel? And that can help us to, that can help make the gospel, it can help us present the gospel in a very compelling way to them. Second, as you learn their story, let them in on your own. The clearest picture of the gospel that we can all articulate is the way that it's worked in our own hearts. Humans are drawn to stories and telling about the way the gospel has worked in us in a story form can help people learn to trust you. Humility and honesty can build trust in relationships. And telling your own story can allow you to lay out the gospel to someone who maybe would not be open to it otherwise. Because if there's a lot of people who, when they feel like they're being preached at, they immediately shut down. But when we share about the way that the gospel has impacted us, the truth of the gospel can be proclaimed in a way that is a lot less abrasive to some people and would maybe be more accepted. And my last application point comes directly from the text, and it is pray earnestly. Jesus says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. My first reaction to reading this passage is not one of satisfaction. I think I, when I see the people around me, I want to think, what can I do? Send me right now. And the idea of praying seems kind of like a momentum killer. And but I think Jesus is very intentional with why he says this. And I think there's, there's two main reasons why I see. I think first, prayer, fo prayer, fo 
Prayer forces us to rely on God because in itself, prayer is an act of reliance. And we see this in all over the New Testament. Paul in Colossians, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the gospel to, make the, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And the picture we see Paul painting here is not one of Paul doing anything, Paul going out and doing these great things. It's God opening a door. And when we pray and ask God for help, we are admitting that we can't do anything on our own. It's only through the, his grace that, we, that the gospel can go out. So I think that's one of the reasons why he calls us first to pray. But I also think he calls us to pray because prayer has great power. And I don't think I realize this or believe this much of the time. But again, if you look at the New Testament, throughout all the epistles are direct requests for prayer or things that Paul says he's specifically praying for them. And if prayer is only... If prayer only exists to help us rely on God more, why would there be so many requests for specific things in prayer? I think just like God doesn't need us for his gospel to come out or to be preached. He could do everything without us, but he chooses and allows us to be part of his great story. And likewise, I think the same is true with our prayers. He doesn't need our prayers for the gospel to go out but he can use them as part of his sovereign plan for the gospel to go. And I think if we remember that, prayer doesn't become something that's disappointing or seems like it kills momentum. Prayer is, like, prayer is the foundation of, of going out.